Number one, it's a place I do not want to be. It is a eternity of gnashing of teeth and torment. Hell for me probably is the struggles that we deal with here on earth and the stuff that doesn't seem like it comes easily or the stuff that doesn't seem fair. Uh, maybe some of the, the evil that exists here. For me, that's what hell is. Work, work is hell. It's just too much stuff going on, so I feel like this is a part of hell. You know, it's not like it's burning fire, but we're a lot of hurting, a lot of pain. So I feel that like this is hell. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's true. There are obviously people that um, that do harm to children and stuff, but it's hard for me to. Uh, decide that um, maybe they just have some internal struggle that I don't and um, could be forgiven beyond it, which is a difficult place to put yourself in, especially if it happened to one of my kids. But um, I don't know. I don't get to decide that, I guess. I don't think anybody deserves it, but I think certain people um, go. There are those non-believers and those that refuse God, and that's what the place is for. But in my opinion, no one deserves it. There's so many horrendous crimes against children and animals. Those are the people who I want to, to feel the heat, so to speak. People who doesn't do well, their karmas are not good. They go to hell and they're punished by God. Uh, I, I think it's a karma kind of thing. You get what you give. And if, you, if you're cruel and, and an awful person, usually it comes back to bite you. I don't think any soul deserves hell. Unfortunately, if you choose to not um, listen and follow and love, I, I feel like you're doomed. That's the best way I could put it. In that video clip, we saw society has different views on hell, right? Some think that their struggles in life uh, or the pain in their life is hell. Others think that the evil in this world is hell. Uh, one guy thought the idea of having to be enslaved to work is hell. And then, some believe that hell is a literal place of eternal punishment. Also addressed in the clip was, who deserves to go to hell? We saw that society generally agreed that uh, those who hurt kids or those who do evil things deserve to go to hell. But for the most part, we heard, no one deserves to go to hell. Hmm. Today, Randy will be addressing these very questions. What is hell? And then, do non-Christians deserve eternal punishment? But please give your attention to Randy Pope. Well, good morning to all. We're glad to have you here again. Week three of our investigative forum. We probably have new people every week, but uh, I hope you're able to go on. You've been told you can go online Tuesday noon. Uh, any week, you can go online and pick up the... Uh, the investigative forum for the last week. So, uh, primer.org slash if answers, I think is where you, where you go for that. The, uh, the last two weeks, we have spent time uh, introducing the whole subject matter of investigating. See, I'm convinced that every theist, somebody who believes in God, if you're a theist and you think there is any chance whatsoever, even a one, two, five percent chance, that Jesus could possibly be who he claims to be, then I think anybody reasonably would say on their deathbed, I wish I had investigated or I am glad that I investigated Jesus. I want you, and I'm going to keep saying this week to week, I want you to know my intention. This is not a place to debate where I'm going to try to argue you down and give you a better argument. Than, I just want to give you the answers of the Christian faith which I think we are representing very fairly here, so you can determine what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about life in general as it relates to religion, as it touches Christianity, that you will say, I understand and I'm able to make my own judgment and decision. So uh, again, not here to, to fight and debate. You, you can't get a fight with me. I'll just say if that's, that's my best answer and, and check that off as not a good enough answer to make you believe he is who he claims to be. So that's just, uh, that's the plan. That's what we're doing. We spent the first week talking about um, life satisfaction. Is there something beyond what most people experience? Uh, number two week, uh, we spent time 
talking about the Bible. What about this Bible? Is it really God's word? Is it trustworthy? What would make, what would make a, a Christian believe that something written that long ago could possibly have ever been, and even if it were, how would it remain something that is trustworthy? And so we addressed that subject last week. This week, we hit what I'm convinced is the most important subject of all subject matter for a seeker to think through. Because we're all living with this challenge, but how can God, and then we fill in the blank. Whatever doesn't seem reasonable or fair makes us question, do we want to know that God? Is that a good God? How could a good God? And, the, and then we, we go from there. The biggest issues are these. How could God let good people who are outside the faith of Christianity, how could he let good people deserve to be separated from God for all eternity, which is the definition of hell? And now we can go further into that if somebody wants to, to talk more, but, but uh, basically I think we all are on the same page when we talk about hell, separation from God for eternity. So how would a God, a good God, ever allow that to happen to good people? And then... A corollary to that would be the question, well, wait, how, why would even God allow bad things to happen to good people? Not just hell, but all the suffering and the pain and the injury and the heartache, all the stuff that people go through. Why would he allow that to happen? Let me begin the, to address those two questions this way. I want to talk a minute about the importance of presupposition. We suppose something to be true, and then we use that as a presupposition to believe that something else is true. So you can imagine if you have a if you have a supposition, you have to ask, well what is the presupposition to that? And and you get one presupposition is going to take you one way uh, to suppose one thing. If you have a different presupposition, it's going to cause you to think a different way and to suppose something that would be totally different, the same issue, but you would come to a different conclusion. It has to do with presuppositions. I think that's the important thing that has to be addressed when we come to subjects like this, what we would call presuppositions. So you have an insert that I'll walk through the outline if you'd like to follow along. I'm happy for you to kind of note where we are. The first of these things that we have to address is this belief. Good people are not necessarily righteous people. There are no innocent people. Now, that's the Christian presupposition, meaning that's what the Bible teaches that leads us to suppose what we do about what happens to people who die and they are not Christians or they are Christians. Uh, let's share a story. I was meeting with a, a, uh, a professional golfer. And uh, did I use this story here? I did, didn't I? All right, I'm going to go back to just relate to that thing because I already told it. Uh, going back to that story, you remember I, I said, uh, I don't even know that I gave you the, the four. Did I tell you the four options that I gave him? Man is good, man is good with the Lord. I, I meet with people every week doing this. So I, I don't know what I've told, what group. But, but uh, uh, so, all right, would you be a kind enough audience that when I ever repeat something, you raise your hand and say, whoa, 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 you're making an idiot of yourself. Would you just do that? Okay. Because <laughs> don't wave your hand. I didn't mean that. Okay, so. So anyway, this guy, you know, he wants to know about, uh, uh, you know, why he's messing up all the time. And so I, I said, there's three things of grip, posture, and alignment in golf and so forth. And, and in life, there are three presuppositions and so forth. Or there are three, uh, basically, grip, posture, and alignment in the Christian faith. And you've got to understand that. And so the first was the grip. If you remember, that was your view of yourself. And then your posture, which was your view of... of uh, uh, of God, and then you've got your, your alignment, which would be your view of the world and the life in which we live. So anyway, when I got to the idea of, uh, okay, can I, can I give you a, a little, uh, just a, a look at your three, can I just give you an evaluation and see where you are from the perspective of Christianity? And he says, sure. And so I said, let's look at your grip first. And I said, I'm going to give you four options. And here, are the four, here were the four options. I may have even mentioned them, but, but uh, these would be the four options. I said, first, let's, let's use the option that man, mankind, people in general, man is good. Number two, man is good with a little bad. 
Number three, man is bad with a little good. And number four, man is bad. So that became the, that became the, the question that I asked him. Now, he answered like everybody answers. I've done this with hundreds and hundreds of people, and I think virtually 100% say man is good with a little bad. And, and I understand why they would say that. Man is good with a little bad. Now, I think that's not what is correct, and the reason I believe that is because I, again, hold to what the Bible has to say, right or wrong, that's something you have to determine. But I want to make it really, really, really clear that there is no doubt whatsoever what the Bible teaches on this subject matter. It is consistent through and through and through. Uh, many of you remember the, the story of... Uh, of Jesus, perhaps, if you've read much of the Bible, and Jesus gets approached by somebody and says, hey, good teacher. And uh, he says, uh, whoa, 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 why do you call me good? Do you not know that there's none good but one? Which he's referring to God. He is good, and he's not denying he is good, but what he's saying is simply this, you don't believe I'm God, so why would you think that I'm good? Because there's, there are no good. That was his perspective. You can go back to the Old Testament. All the way to the Old Testament, and you see David, the great giant of the, of the Old Testament. Paul, the giant of the New Testament. And they say the very exact same thing. In Romans 3, Paul, quoting David, he says, There's none good, no, not one. There's none who seek for God, no, not one. There's none good, no, not one. Very interesting. And so that is a consistent theme throughout uh, the scriptures. People get confused by this idea of dead in sin. What, what do you mean dead in sin? What it's saying is, is that man has a nature, and the nature is a sin nature. So if this is me, this is my nature of sin, and according to the Bible, that man is born united with a sin nature. All right? And he is dead in his sin he has no life because of his sin. That's the basic Bible teaching about sin. But most people think, no, this is just an issue of how good am I, how bad am I. No, 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 we got an issue of our nature. Our nature is a sin nature. Meaning this, that we might do good things, but any good that we would do, if you could see purely into the motive, in the deepest motive, you'd see that it's going to be riddled in some form or fashion with sinfulness. Wrong motives. Good things done with wrong motives are not to be accepted from God's perspective. So that gives a little idea. This perhaps puts it even uh, a clear. My grandfather was a, uh, a director of a, uh, he actually started and owned a funeral home my entire life. And uh, so if little kids, my brother and I would, uh, 60 miles away, would drive, see our grandpa, or go with our parents, see our grandparents. And and they lived across the street from the funeral home, so we played at the funeral home. It was a delightful place to, uh, to play. You, you, could, you, know, you could hide in the embalming room. You could, you could hide in the casket room. I mean, it was just all kind of things. We knew all the employees, and we were the granddad's grandkids. So, uh, you know, it was just our fun place to be. So death was nothing foreign to us. Uh, we saw dead people all the time, daily. And so, but they bring somebody in who was, let's say, 30 years of age and had just died. It literally looks like they're asleep. I couldn't tell the difference. But they said, well, they're dead. I said, well, they look good. They look awake. They look al I mean, alive. I, I can't imagine. Then they bring somebody in that had been found in the woods, maybe from two, three months. The body has decayed. The stench, the sight, horrendous. But then we have to ask the question, which of those two would be the most dead? Well, we would have to agree, well, they're equally dead, but it doesn't mean they appear to be equal. Very same in the scriptures. They're people, all people, dead in their sin. But some you'd look at and say, well, what makes you think they're dead? They act, they act nice, they're kind, they're loving, they're generous, they're friendly. Oh, these people, they look dead because look how heinous they are in their actions. Look what they do to the little children. Look how they abuse women. Look how they do the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But equally dead, just different. That is the presupposition 
teaching of the Bible. So very important to begin there. Let's look at number two. Number two is everyone has an opportunity. Now we're going to go a little deeper here. So kind of put on your, your seatbelts for just a moment because this could be a little bumpy, all right? Sometimes a little hard to follow. We can ask any questions you want about this too. But here's the question. So, well, it doesn't seem fair because look at the people who never even hear about Jesus. Well, there's a presupposition there that everyone did not have an opportunity. And if that is the truth, then we would say, well, how would you find a God who would be doing something to somebody who never even had an opportunity to deal with the issue at hand? They didn't have that opportunity. That's where the presupposition is wrong, according to Christianity. According to Christianity, we'd say, no, everyone does have an opportunity. If you'd like to go and read that more in detail, the book of Romans, chapter 1, will give you a lot more to read there about that. But to make it very, very simple, let me help you understand it this way. That if you, if you uh, really want to get down to figure it out, you've got to ask this question, well, they have an opportunity. What is that opportunity, and why in the world are people guilty anyway? Well, we have to ask, what do you think man is guilty of? Do you know I can ask the typical Christian, this would be somebody who's in churches today, and I say, why are people sent to hell? And you know what their answer will be? They say, because they reject people reject Jesus. I say, that's not true biblically. That's not, that is really not the truth, because they reject Jesus? No. The real issue is found in, in the book of Romans, in chapter, in chapter 1, it says this. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's an important, important text. Uh, maybe, maybe to understand it this way. Mankind, according to the Bible, is designed in the image of God. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Meaning that the image of God stamped on man. So we, we are different than the animals. We have the image of God. We reflect the very natures of God. There are certain things that are communicable in his character and some that are not. In other words, uh, we can be loving people as God is a loving people. Not as loving, but we can be. Uh, God it would be known as, as uh, immutable, unchangeable. Well, that's not us, so that's not one of those. But we do reflect many of the characteristics of God because we are in his image. Now, what this is saying is everybody has an opportunity because in the image of God, we know, meaning we have enough light, knowledge, or understanding to recognize that we are. And so the reason that man is going to be punished in hell is not because we just did this wrong, we said this thing bad. No, it's something far different. It is we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Meaning we acknowledge there is a creator God. We may not even know about Jesus. But it's not rejecting Jesus. It's rejecting God. We push him away saying, I don't want him to be boss of my life. Now there's a teaching in the Bible that says that where light is given and received, more light is given. Very interesting. Where light is received and rejected, light which, ha which uh, is given is taken away. So the teaching of Romans 1 is that we all know there is a God, and it's what do we do with the knowledge of God. So in other words, when I hear that there's a new tribe uh, that's received God's word in a, in a country, a very dark, spiritually dark country, I think, hmm, there was probably somebody in that country who received the light they had, and they didn't push it away, and they said, I want more light. And God says, more light shall be given. i just come back from... Uh, uh, from Egypt. I've been in Iraq and Iran and uh, many of the, the, uh, the countries there that, uh, uh, where the gospel is forbidden. And thousands upon thousands, and this is not just, oh yes, this is real. I mean, it's documented. Thousands upon thousands of people who are coming to faith, and when you ask them, how did you come to faith? They say, through a dream, through a vision. I found out who Jesus was. I understood him. I met him. And I, 
began to pursue and go online and search him out and find out and so forth and so on. And just amazing ways. I, when I hear that, I say there's somebody who is not suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Now, there are people who say they're atheists. They're going to say, I'm an atheist, non-theist. I don't believe in God. And then there are those who are theists. In my opinion, maybe wrong, can't document it, it won't, can't prove it. But in my opinion, there are no true atheists. There are agnostics, but not atheists. And the reason is because I think innately they know that there is, they are the created, they are, uh, they are the design, and that there had to be a designer, and they innately know that. But they push that away. They don't want to think about it, believe it, until finally they say, I just don't even believe it. I think they really do. I remember uh, there was a, a person that somebody was a college student that uh, the family wanted me to meet with them and, and said uh, they're atheists and whatever so on. And I said, well, I'd be happy to, you know, at least meet with them. And so we sit down to meet. As we're sitting down to meet, this person says, I'm an atheist. And I said, are you really an atheist? He said, yeah, I'm an atheist. I said, so you're convinced, you know, you're 100% sure there is no God. Not, I'm not sure, I don't know, but that'd be, an, that'd be an agnostic. No, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. I said, okay, you're an atheist. So I said, then you're not going to really mind what I'm going to do. And uh, so well, what are you going to do? I said, well, first of all, let me tell you a couple of answers to prayer, in my opinion, that I've experienced. And I walked through a couple of answers to prayer. And when I finished, I said, how do you think that happened? This person looked back to me and said, do you think that's going to convince me of God? Come on. Stranger things happen. I can't explain it, but I don't mean it was God. I said, okay, good. Then you're really not going to care. I said, what? I said, I'm going to start praying for you. And what I'm going to pray is that you experience all hell breaking loose in your life. I'm going to pray for deaths in your family. I'm going to pray for disease. I'm going to pray for loss of employment. I couldn't get the list going very far before this person said, stop. Don't you dare do that. I looked back at him and I said, oh, so you think maybe there could be a God, huh? And it was obvious. By the way, this person became a follower of Christ and is to this day still following Christ. But uh, maybe there are atheists, but I'll say this. Innately, I am convinced the Bible teaches it. I certainly have seen nothing that would make me think it's not true. We know there is something beyond us, and it's our pushing against that. By the way, just to help you understand this, did you know that those of us that are Christians... We have a mandate from Jesus that is called the Great Commission. It's the very last thing Jesus said before he was taken up to be in the heavenlies, after his resurrection. You know what the mandate was? Go and tell everybody about me. Let everybody know. Now you think about it. If the reason that people are sent to hell is because they reject Jesus, which is not the issue, they reject Jesus? No. If that were the case, he'd be saying, hey, don't tell people about me. Because if they never hear about me, they're okay. Do you know what the reality is? If we think it's just rejecting Jesus that is the reason that people are punished and go to hell, what we're saying is that God owed it to mankind to send a Savior. That would make the giving of Jesus an act of justice instead of an act of mercy and an act of grace, giving us a Savior we didn't deserve. So I often ask people, if you want to know the teaching of the Bible, what would happen if Jesus had never been given? And the answer would be, everybody would be separated from God. No one would have a chance. So, a little different approach at uh, understanding that. I'll say this too, that, that uh, people tend to believe that, okay, some people, because the Bible teaches that apart from Jesus as the way, you're going to see this over and over, as the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through him, the scriptures say. If he is required, then if he's given the understanding of Jesus to some people, and he's not giving it to all people in the same way, well, yeah, they can have a dream or vision, but that's not as good as we get to go to church. We hear about him all the time. These people hear Jesus all the time. These people don't hear much about Jesus. That's really not fair. Jesus addressed that one in Matthew 20. It's an interesting parable. 
he says this. He said there was a, a landowner and he had his crops that needed to be harvested and so he hires these people to to work early morning they start working and about nine he says i need some more workers he told these people he give them i'll just use the term twenty dollars which isn't the amount but i give him twenty dollars to work for the day and then and then at nine in the morning he says i need some more people he hires some more he says i'll give you twenty dollars if you'll work to the end of the day at noon i need some more workers i give you twenty bucks if you work to the end of the day three o'clock hey i'll give you twenty bucks if you work to the end of the day well nobody else knew what the others were getting just what they were getting and they were thrilled to have their twenty bucks to be able to work through the day. So they gather everybody together and start giving 20 bucks to every person. What do you think happens? The people who are at the front of the day say, that's not fair. You gave me 20 bucks. I worked all day. You gave them 20 bucks and they worked just a few hours. That's not fair. And his response is, and he's referring to him, himself and the father. And he says, did we not give what we said we would do? Was it not gracious that we gave it all? And I mean, the point is, we weren't obligated to give the same to everybody. I remember one time I was taking, I used to take my kids out on a rotating basis on a, a date each week. And so we'd go out and do something fun and something we normally wouldn't do. And so I was taking one of my kids out and we were getting ready to come home. And, and I kind of spoiled them on that one night and whatever they wanted. And so we're getting ready to go home and and uh, my son says, hey, Dad, can, can we get some ice cream before we go home? And I said, oh, man, we got to get home now. I, I don't think so. If I, you know, you'll still be eating that probably by the time you get in. And the other kids, we have four kids. The other three are going to see it. And, that's, and then all of a sudden it hit me. Oh, yeah. I said, yeah, we'll go get some ice cream on the condition that you don't finish eating it before we get home. All right? And so we walk in, and he's got his, his ice cream cone in hand. And... Uh, the other kids see it and say, oh, boy, Dad, where's our ice cream? I said, well, I didn't get you any ice cream. They said, you didn't get us any? You got, you got him some ice cream? And I said, I know it. Well, that's not fair. And I was waiting to hear that. That's not fair. And I said, oh, okay. Well, let me just explain this to you. I am King Pope. <laughs> and I am King of the Popes. And you are a Pope. Now, we have a queen, Queen Carol. I said, Queen Carol, would you come in here? So Carol comes in and says, yeah. And I said, Queen Carol, our subjects here are questioning the fairness of what our law says in the Pope law. And I, I'm just curious to know. I, 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 don't, I can't think of any. Can you think of any laws of the popes that say when you buy one child ice cream, you've got to buy all children ice cream? She says, I don't recall any law like that. So I said, okay, no good. You're, you're out of here. No, you, it's not unfair. Can we not choose to do good to whom we please? It's grace, but because you don't show grace, now you've got to show justice to all, but you don't have to show grace to all to be righteous. So just a different presupposition, very important to understand. Number three, we get to the, the issue of all issues. This one, I tell the people I meet with, as I'm individually talking to them, I say, if I am going to challenge the faith of Christianity, this is where I'm going to hit them. I'm going to ask this question. So you're telling me, based on everything, that I'm a, that I'm a, a sinful person and I have a sinful nature, doesn't the Bible say it's because there was an original parent who sinned and because of that sin I am born in the likeness of that original parent in sin? So that's exactly what the Bible teaches, Romans chapter 5. And they say, that's wrong. That is not fair. And then I love to respond to say, let me tell you, without you understanding this answer, you're missing the best news of all news of the Christian faith. So see if you can follow this. I simply explain that, do you know that the Western world is very individualistic? The Eastern world is far more corporate and not individualistic, uh, kind of what was called corporate personality. You know what corporate personality is? Corporate personality is when you take a group and treat them as if they were one. Corporate personality. It's very Eastern, but so did the faith of Christianity come out of an Eastern world, and it's very understandable to them. Do you know there used to be countries, I don't think it's probably true much now, but, but uh, in the belief of this corporate personality that if, if you were hired and they found out that you had a sibling who was unemployed, even though they didn't need to hire anybody else, they would feel obligated to hire your sibling because how do we separate the two of you? It's, it's, that's the corporate personality. You see corporate personality throughout the Bible. Probably the most, 
the most uh, prominent story is a story about a man named Achan. If you don't know the story, you may be familiar with the walls of Jericho that come falling down. Well, uh, Jericho was the city that had just been destroyed. Joshua was the commander of the Israelites who were the ones who took on the, uh, uh, the, uh, the city of Jericho. And they, they take that city. It's amazing because Jericho was so fortified, so strong. And here the Israelites, how could they possibly do it? But God intervened. And in doing so, he had said, by the way, when you win, you cannot take any of the spoils of the land. Nothing. None of the silver, none of the gold, nothing. So they take Jericho. So then God says, I want you to go down the plain a little ways. And there's a, a little small town. It's called Ai, and I want you to take Ai, and it's going to be a simple take. There's not that many people. It's not very well fortified and so forth. So they go down to take Ai, and they get whipped by this little town. It's like they can't figure out why. And so Joshua says to God, what happened? And God says, it's punishment for what has happened here at Jericho. There's sin in the camp. Somebody took some of the spoil, and that's the reason. So God had them bring out the whole nation of Israel. And God takes the nation of Israel, which has 12 tribes, and he says, you 11 tribes can go. Then he takes the one tribe, and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, just making this a little bit more understandable. This isn't exactly how it goes, but same storyline. He says, okay, so here you've got the, tri the, uh, the tribe. with tribes made up of many clans. He lets all these clans go. One clan is left. The clan is made up of families, probably of multi-groups of, of families that are all together as one family. And so he says, now this family, you're here. And he says, this is the family. It's a man called Achan who's in this family. And then God says, kill everybody. Everybody has to pay the penalty. Well, now, can you imagine being Achan's first cousin, Levi, who hates Achan maybe and just, you know, and he goes, oh, God, whoa, 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 God, don't, don't kill me. I, I hate him. Achan, I've never liked him. You know, I'm on your side on this one. I would have killed him myself. I, would, I mean, I don't, I don't like him at all. I didn't know about it. I promise you, you don't kill me. God says, no. And everybody in the family dies. Corporate personality. Now, I share that with anybody I'm sitting over lunch with. Just like here, I'm sure with you. I share that, and you say, and that's a fair God? Let me tell you, here's the beauty of it. Let's assume there is no corporate personality at all. No corporate personality. So you have Adam, the first parent. Assuming you believe the Bible story of there being a first parent. Here's Adam. And it says, because of Adam, we all sin, all humanity, come into this world with a sin nature. All this sin falls short of the glory of God. But let's say there's no corporate personality. That means that, okay, it has nothing to do with Adam. It's just going to have to do with what I stand alone and do. It has nothing to do with me coming in his nature, a fallen nature. So what's the chances that Adam's sin? We know what happened to Adam. He sinned. What about his his child. Well, his child comes along. Do you think there would ever be any child that could ever come along in the whole lineage that would live a lifetime and never sin? Well, let's assume there is. So he goes to perfection, so he gets to live forever. He goes to heaven. But he has a child who sins, so he dies. And so there you go. Well, the truth of it is, you would really come to the same conclusion. Everyone's going to eventually sin on their own, and so everybody's going to be separated from God because God says, if you sin, you must die, meaning be separated from God. But because of corporate personality, the Bible says there is the first Adam that we've been talking about, the first parent. And there is a second Adam. Do you know who the second Adam is? Anybody know? Jesus. He's the second Adam. And here's the beauty of it. This is what people miss. And people say, well, you can get to God any way you want to get to God. Uh -uh. Listen, it's because Jesus is perfectly righteous. He alone is the righteous one. Because he paid the penalty of death for sin, which God said is the penalty for sin. Anybody in this lineage of the first Adam, all humanity, who chooses and wants to be in this family can come over here and because of Jesus, when you come into this family, we are made as righteous because of Christ and viewed perfectly righteous because of Christ as much as we are sinful and viewed sinful even because of Adam and his sin. 
Romans chapter 5 if you want to read about it. But I'm telling you, it's the greatest news of all. That's why people who really understand Christianity get away from this, oh, I'm this, and I do this, and I'm good at this, and I don't do that, therefore I'm sure God will love me, and I'm okay, and I do this, therefore God will love me. They don't understand. No, we're in this lineage. We have to be over here, and this is why Christ would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me because we have to be made righteous. Even though we still sin, we're declared righteous. I'll say this. There are people that look more alive who are not alive than some people who truly have come to life and are so young in the faith. They're messing up and they're not kind, they're not friendly, but they're righteous. That's a challenging thought, but it's true. But the beauty of it is we don't have to go to bed at night and say, have I been good enough yet? Am I loving enough? Am I kind enough? Am I gentle enough? Am I? No. Was Christ enough? Yes. So that's the story of the two lineages of the two Adams. All right? Leads to the last question, and that is this. God would not, or issue, God would not be righteous if sinful man were not punished. So God says in Numbers 23, 19, that he is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he spoken, shall he not do it? Has he said it? Shall he not make it good? Meaning that he does what he says. I've had buddies, people I've been talking to, they say, you know, Pope, let me tell you, I don't, I don't know. I think your God's a lot better God than you must think he is because let me tell you, I know this. God's done a lot of good things for me and he'll still do good things for me when I, when I die. And even though I may not be one of his followers and do what he says and obey and surrender to him and all that stuff, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be fine because I can, talk, I can talk anybody into anything. He said, you know, when I get there, I'm just going to say, God, please, come on. I know you said that if I sin, I must die, but come on. And he's going to probably say, okay, let me in. And I say, once that happens, God is no longer God. Because God has gone against his word. He is not a man that he would lie. The son of man that he should change or repent. So, if you want to take out your, your uh, brochure again and look on the other side of it, you'll see... Uh, the, the question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And all I'm going to do on this, without so I don't take so much time, I'm just going to walk through the outline very, very quickly. There are two questions that have to be answered in addressing that question. Remember the presupposition. The first is who are good people? We've already addressed that. But I'd like to bring in Rabbi Kushner. Uh, you may be familiar with his book on, on why bad things happen to good people. And basically, this is my summary of that book and basically what it's saying. It's saying, because man is good and God is good and bad things happen to good people, God is not involved in bad things, not only not allowing them, but not able to stop them from happening. That's the conclusion that this Rabbi Kushner, it's one of the world's leading selling books uh, over the years. Uh, that would be his perspective. We've already gone through Jesus' perspective. Matthew 19, I walked through that text. Uh, the Romans 3, 19 and 20, scratch that out. That's, that's not the correct text. It should just be the, the bottom one, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12. So uh, according to Jesus, no one is good. So that's the, that's the thing we've really already looked at. Look at the next one. What are bad things? I think we have no concept of what are truly the bad things. So, as it reads, there are more important things to God than keeping sinful man from suffering. That's a presupposition to what many people would find a, something they suppose to be true that's not really true. Because they go, really? I wouldn't think that. Look at the next statement. This is a, a statement by someone else. It's a tremendous statement. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So, to end that, what are the three things that God loves? Among many things, these are very important to know. He loves exposing man's sin so as to make him seek God. Now, the, uh, the book that is worth anybody's reading, When God Weeps, it's by, by uh, um, uh, Tata and Estes, uh, this uh, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you may have heard that name. It's a, it's a lady who is a, a quadriplegic, 
quadriplegic who, who you know, has lived since teenagehood. You know, she's probably about my age now. And uh, all these years in a wheelchair without use of hands uh, and body. And, um, and this is what it says. She says in there, the beauty of being exposed and empty is that God can then cover you like a surface that must be scrubbed clean before you can bond anything to it. The bonding of intimacy between God and us won't adhere until the film of dirt goes. The ambitions, the vanity, everything that sets itself up against others and God. Affliction, listen to this, affliction is the grist mill where pride is reduced to powder, leaving our souls naked, bare, and bonded to Christ. And it feels beautiful. Hmm. Second reason, he loves perfecting a person's inner being, keeping his or her heart where it was designed to be. James 1, uh, verses 2 and 4 says, Consider all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it joy when you encounter troubles. That's a Christian perspective there. Why is that? Uh, these two authors write on earth's pain keeps crushing our hopes reminding us this world can never satisfy only heaven can and every time we begin to nestle too comfortably on this planet god cracks open the locks of the dam to allow an ice cold splash of suffering to wake us from our spiritual slumber suffering keeps swelling our feet so that earth's shoes won't fit Suffering sandblasts us to the core, removing sin and uh, impurities so that intimacy with Jesus is possible. And the last reason, he loves administering justice so that his righteousness is not compromised. There's the numbers text I just quoted. So here's the true rabbi, Jesus. Here's his perspective. Because man is not good and God is good, Bad things do happen to people, not merely because they deserve them, but better yet, because those who do or will follow him need them. Totally different perspective. If you go to the, um, go to the uh, next page, we can look at, at a few of these questions very quickly um, that uh, are in your book of John. Hopefully you're reading a little bit of John every day. Um, the first one I've already basically addressed, number 10 question, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the bread of life? And that means that bread is that which satisfies. If you remember the first week, if not, go back, you can watch it. I gave the story of glory, and that's where uh, we talked about that which truly satisfies. Christ is the hope of glory, and glory is what satisfies. I won't review that. If you move down to 13, 13 says, Jesus taught that to be his disciples meant to follow his word. What does it mean to hold to his teaching? Now, what he's saying is this. What does it mean to hold to his teaching? Well, it means that you do follow his teaching. You follow his teaching. Now, later when we get to week five, I'm going to talk about, well, does that mean perfectly follow? How much do you follow? What does that mean? Nobody's perfect in following. I realize that. But it is the heart that says, I desire and seek and want, and I'm just, I'm just so hurt with what I've done because I'm not following the way I should. That's a whole different story there. That's a real follower. So as I keep saying, I'm going to say this probably three more times before this, this time is over because I want to hear this. One thing true of a follower, a true follower, is they follow so again somebody says oh i'm a follower of jesus now that is when i want to follow him now if he tells me to do something i don't want to follow i don't follow then i just make up my reason why i think it's really not the best thing and i do what i want to do but but i am a follower i just don't follow and i tell people all the time i say please when you hear those people don't buy in necessarily their followers if they can say that and say i'm happy to go out i'll just keep doing what i'm doing even though god says not i don't care I have a different view. That's not a follower. So very important, understand number 13. What does it mean, number 14, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be free? Please understand this, particularly to you young people. Young people, we tend to think coming up that freedom is the license to do whatever I want to do. That is not freedom, remember? 
Like we went up through the diagram. Freedom is the ability to do what you should do. So I illustrate. Imagine a train that is having to go around and will personify the train as if it's alive. And the train is going, oh my goodness, we're having to go around this mountain so slow, going up, around, 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 finally get up to the top of the mountain. And the train says to itself, I'm tired of this. Now I've got to go back and it's going to be slow, going around, it's no fun. I want some excitement. I want to do something that's thrilling. I want to go straight down. So it jumps off the track and it starts going down. And the first, you know, the first portion of that is, is of the ride of the train's life. Like this is exciting and it's bumping and going faster and faster. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 and it flips and it tears to a thousand pieces. It's destroyed. Well, it had the freedom, that is the license, to get off the track. That's what it wanted. But it needed the ability to stay on the track in order to find that which really satisfies. If you look at number 15, the Jews of Jesus' day certainly had a strong belief in God. They taught about God. They taught about his commandments. They taught about his love. They talked about his justice. They talked about his mercy, all that stuff they believed in. Did God accept such a belief? Did Jesus accept such a belief as sufficient? And if you read the text, Jesus said, no, I don't care. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how, how much you believe. Of, that's not it. Very much, you have to go through Jesus. Number 16 and 17. What did Jesus mean when he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am? Number 17, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the gate for the sheep? What he's saying is, he's God. When he says, um, number, number 16 there, before Abraham was born, I am. I am is a word, and it's the word of being, existing. And he's saying, I have always existed. Jesus saying that. And then he says, now you need to know this, I am the gate. Meaning that here is where the sheep have to come in. And I am that way. And he said, well, I can go through this way over here. You know, I'm a God lover. I just go through this gate. He says, no, you can't go through that gate. I'm the only gate. Now, if Jesus isn't God, forget it. I mean, it doesn't matter. Go through whatever gate you choose to go through. But if you come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be, then you have to say, wow, I need to come through him, which means I'm a follower. What you're going to learn the last week is you think, okay, I've got to be a follower if that's what it takes. No. When you really become a follower, which I will explain the last week, when you really become a follower, there will be the greatest evidence of all because you'll have this longing to follow. And when you don't follow, Oh, it'll grip you so hard. You'll go, oh, why am I not following? Oh, God, help me follow. I want to follow you. That's the difference. So it's not you're having to live always a contrary to everything you want to do. Now you want to do. I use the illustration of love. I'll probably repeat it again. But, but uh, you know, what, there are things that Carol loves for me to do that I just, I don't like to do. But I love her so much when she, I find out she wants me to do it. I go, you know what? That's enough reason for me to do it right there. Because I love her. Love makes all the difference in the world there. Okay? Now, we've gone through everything I think uh, important to kind of dispel here is information. Now, uh, I'd like to open it up to our Q&A. And we've got uh, about 20 minutes for the Q&A if we need it. And again, as I say every week, we can get out of here at any minute when there are no more hands or no more questions coming in. That's fine. Uh, if some groups don't care about asking much questions, fine. I'm just here to help you. We have microphones. We'd love to be able to hear the questions so they can be recorded as people will be listening to this online. So please uh, wait for the mic. Raise your hand. Uh, we will go between here live and go to the board. We'll take whatever you're texting or emailing. You have the information on your chair to tell you how to do that. You can be doing it all week if you choose. So I'm sure we, I need mass, but I'm sure we probably have some that have come in during the week. But I want to start here, and it's only for those who are truly seeking to understand the Christian faith, not for the Christian community. We've got plenty of opportunities to address these questions for you. This is for those who are saying, I'm not there, and I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more, or I've got a little problem with something you said you know, but I'm trying to figure this whole thing out, okay? So, anybody who'd like to raise a question from the audience, I'll start here first. Raise your hand, and we'll get you a microphone, and, and, uh, and I'll do whatever I can do my best to answer. Anybody have a, a question here? Okay. 
I don't see one starting on the floor. Do we have something that's come in? All right, we got one up here. If God didn't need us, why did he make us? Uh, well, good question. I would make a little change there. We, we assume that God didn't need us. That's correct. But if, if we see that, that doesn't mean that he couldn't want us. Did he need us for him to be God? No. But something that he did desire was to have relationship with that created in his image, in the image of the triune God. And so that's why he created, that he would have fellowship with those in his image. Not God, but those in his image as God. So that's why he would make us. By the way, how many of you kind of find that you're living your life in some part to kind of gain the affection and the admiration and the love of other people? And we even do it sinfully. Not anything wrong with having people respect us. That's good. You know, if we're respectable, no, no problem with that. But we understand that much. We're in his image. We understand that. We love glory. We don't deserve often the glory we get. But one thing, God always deserves the glory he gets, right? And so did I walk through, I think I did maybe through a Q&A, did I walk through the answer of, of, of what if God had, uh, had not uh, had a fallen people, a, a sinful people? Have I done that? I don't think I have. Okay. Let's put it this way. Imagine, imagine that there's somebody that you know who is the most brilliant, wise, incredible person you've ever, 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 ever met. You think you'd give that person glory? Yeah. You look at the people who are the best of the best of the best. Take the golf. Take, take any sport. The best in the sport. Uh, take, them, uh, take it to, to whatever entertainment. Take it to, you know, politics. Somebody that you really admire and look at and they've got the very, very, very top. Oh, man, we applaud them. Way, way, way to go, way to go, way to go. So we're going to applaud that. Now imagine if God had never allowed sin to come in the world. Now, sure, I haven't done this already. Okay. Let's assume God had never allowed sin in the world, which I get that question a lot. Why didn't he even let sin in the world? I mean, it wouldn't even be a problem. Say, well, wait, think about it this. No sin in the world, so he creates a, a, a people in his image, and all those people are with him forever. That would be the result. Would we know God as a God of wisdom? Yes. Would we know him as a God of all knowledge? Yes. And the list could go on and on. Let me ask you this. Would God be a God of grace? A lot of people go, I don't know. He would never need to show grace, would he? If no one needed grace, we're all perfect. Would we know him as a God of mercy? Well, I guess God would never show mercy because we would never be in need of mercy. We're without sin. And the story, what about forgiveness? No, there never be. he'd still be a God of forgiveness and mercy and grace, but we would never know him. Now imagine you take that person that you're applauding because they are just so wise and, and all knowledgeable and, and talented and all the things they are, and then put somebody next to them who is all of those things and to you, when you didn't deserve it, showed grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Extraordinaire. Sacrificed big time for your sake. Would we know him as a God of mercy, forgiveness, and so forth? Yeah. So God says, what does he want? By the way, the answer to all questions, parents, if you want to train your children the best you'll ever, you, you drill this reality in there. Why does God do all things? The answer, for his own glory. That's been accepted for hundreds of years. The greatest answer to the question, for his own glory. He does all things for his own glory. So, creation without sin, some glory. Creation with forgiven sin, incredible glory. And I would assume 
That would be my answer. I don't think that's a, the biblical story that you're going to find, but I say it makes sense to me. If glory is what he's after, I understand why he would let a people be created of which some are not even going to be following him. So, all right, any other on the floor? You going to come to mind? All right, back here in the very back. Good. Um, where do bad things come from? Where do bad things come from? All right, yeah. very good. In the book of James, it says there that we should not blame God for our sin because it is our own selfishness and sinfulness that causes our sin to come. So, in other words, he created us with the capacity to sin, but he did not create the sin. He never coerces man to sin at all. The Bible teaches that. Never we coerce to sin, but it is our own hearts that desire to sin. Now, trace that back. Why would our hearts be that way? Well, because we're in a fallen people, the human race of sin, which people say, I don't like that, doesn't make sense to me, I understand that. But the Bible says, if it's correct, it says it's not because God puts us and makes us sin, but because we choose to sin, so it would be our own volitional will, the reason that we sin. It comes from us would be the answer. All right? You want to go further on that? Anything further? Yeah. Um, I guess... My follow-up question to that is, um, I guess I was asking more generally, um, not necessarily in terms of why people do bad things, um, but, you know, why is there even this, why is bad even exist if uh, God is perfect and all things come from God and were created from God? Uh, like, where did it come from? How did it begin? Um, you know, going back to... Well, you know, Adam sinned. Uh, where did the concept of sin even come from for him to be the first sinner? Well, the story of the Bible in the, in the Garden of Eden would be when, when Adam is tempted and Eve is tempted and they choose to believe a lie. Now, I really can't give you much more answer to that. I don't know. In fact, do you know there's a lot? Do you know there's a lot in the Bible that we try to come up with the answers. And I don't think it's wrong to say, well, I can assume a good answer for that, but no, this is my answer. That's what I did last, the last question. I couldn't go to the Bible and say that. But there's so much we don't know. And we're in the realm of God. And when you get in that realm of God, I'm telling you, it's just there's so much we will never know. In fact, we are told in the, in the book of Deuteronomy that there are things hidden from our understanding. Certainly there are. That we would never understand. You know, when I go to the deepest, I, why would even God allow sin in this world? I mean, I look at that and I give that answer I just gave. And I, okay, I can see a reasonable reason that I can create. So obviously with God, there's far more knowledge than I have. I don't know. But I don't really know. I, 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 say, I have to say all the time to people, I say, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I, I give you my best shot at what I would think, but I don't know that the Bible even addresses that anywhere. So that I have to just say, and if I'm investigating Christianity and I hear that answer, I would put that on the negative ledger. Maybe to say, okay, God is not reasonable in this. I don't have an answer of why it was, would be reasonable that makes sense to me. I'd have to put it there. But if you investigate and you come to believe Jesus is who he claimed to be and the Bible is the word of God, then you submit yourself to say there are things I don't understand and I don't have to understand them in order to believe them. Uh, let me put a little thing up here. Um, this will maybe help. If I were to use a, uh, and again, I meet with so many people doing this. I don't remember the q and I need to go back and we need to kind of know what questions I've already answered. But I do the, the, the dot on here. Did I do the dot? Okay. All right. So I'm really kind of ticked at God. I'm a young follower kind of figuring it out. I'm a Christian. I'm just, you know, but then I'm reading things in the Bible that I don't like at all. So I happened to be at this conference where they had a PhD. I mean, the guy was probably 60, 65 years of age. I'm a, I'm a teenager trying to figure this stuff out. And, and uh, this guy was just brilliant. And I'm going to go up to him after a little class I was in with him. And I said, I don't, I don't like what God does. I, I don't think that teaching in the Bible is correct. He goes, really? Well, why? Because it doesn't make sense to me. Well, that was the worst thing I could have ever said, I'm sure. 
And he said, oh, really, that makes sense to you? Hmm. He takes a blackboard. Let's assume this to be the blackboard. It was much bigger. And uh, he took a piece of chalk, and he said, uh, let's assume this blackboard represents the knowledge of God. All right? Now, is this blackboard white, uh, finite or infinite? I said, it is finite. He said, would the knowledge of God be finite or infinite? And, and I thought, I believed it then, I believe now, I said, I guess his knowledge is infinite. He said, that's correct. That's according to the Bible. It's an infinite knowledge. So if this represents the knowledge of God, this board would go forever and ever and ever and ever in every single direction. I go, okay. He says, now, let's, he says, you, do you understand I've understated this case big to say this limited board is the infinite knowledge of God? I said, yeah. And he says this, he says, he draws a circle. He said, let's let that circle represent the knowledge of all accumulated human knowledge of all time. If you put everybody's knowledge together, that would be it. Now, keep in mind that that's a very finite no amount of knowledge, and the infinite knowledge of God would go on and on and on. So I've really understated this case because that is way too big a circle to put on this side board. All right? One hundredth or whatever it is, one eightieth. You know that. I said, okay, good. Then he says... He draws a little circle inside that circle. He says, that's about one-sixth of that circle. He said, that circle represents the knowledge of the most brilliant human with the most knowledge of any person in the history of mankind, presumably somebody alive today who's just genius and has more knowledge than you can imagine, and there's nobody that would have a fifth or sixth of all the knowledge from all of history, right? I say, yes. He says, I've understated that case, right? I say, yeah. And then he did this. He says, and he puts a little dot right in the middle. Maybe you see the dot there. So he puts a dot. And he says, that represents your knowledge compared to that person's. And then he reminded me that was his biggest of understatements that he's made at that point because the dot was way too big in his opinion. Then he took an eraser and he erased everything but that dot that was there. He erased everything. In fact, if you stood back, you could not even see the dot. It was so small. He said, that dot is way, way, way too big, right? I said, yeah. He said, this board would go forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah. He says, do you think it's possible that there are ways and teachings of God somewhere out here on this board in the knowledge of God field that doesn't seem to line up with your little dot? That maybe you can't quite get everything that God's got. I said, yeah. He said, I'll give you this word of advice. If you really are a follower of Jesus and you believe in him and you believe he's who he claimed to be, you believe the Bible, then submit to the Bible's teaching whether it makes sense to you or not. And he said, you'd be a smart person to do that. Do you know what? I took him at his word and now this, you know, 50 years later, I tell you this, I have never regretted that. The things that I have followed that I don't understand and even don't like and I follow it, at some point in time, it seems like I come across and I go, oh my goodness, now I got it. Wow, didn't know that, God. So, you know, I would just suggest that this is an issue of faith, but everybody is living an issue of faith. It's like the atheist that I just talked to recently. That I said, look, you and I are both, we're both people of faith. You're having faith there is no God. I'm having faith there is a God. We both live by faith. So if you believe that Jesus is and Christianity is, you embrace, then, hey, don't just take what you agree with because it makes sense to you. Take everything. That's the, that's the path to blessing. All right? Let's uh, go one more, up, one more up here. One more? All right. Why does God make it so hard to be a Christian? Uh, I really appreciate the, the question there. Uh, you know, I would say this. If it's hard to become a Christian, the hard part of becoming a Christian is denying yourself. The hard part is saying, I'm not king. I'm not the biggest, the best, and therefore I'll rule my life. That requires humility. And I think humility is the hardest thing in the world to ever have. <laughs> Particularly if people are giving you reason to believe otherwise. You're the best, you're the greatest, you're this, you're that, you're other. You have to come humble. And you come with a, a bent knee saying, I can't, God, only you can. There's no works that I can do now. It's all you. That's hard. But it's free. 
That's the good news. It's hard, but it's free. I think the question may be asked, why is living the Christian life so hard? Well, the reason is because we're a broken people and will stay broken till we meet Jesus again in eternity. Well, we're a broken vessel. The good news, though, it's hard. It is a, it is a labor, hard every day to wrestle with truth and obedience and all that. I agree with that. But the good news is there's incredible joy in the battle. That's the good news. So, yeah, there's some hard. But you know what? You look, they're having the NFL combine right now. The guys that made it to the NFL, they experienced hard. It was not easy. But they didn't mind doing it because of what they got. And I think it's a very similar thing. When you fall in love with God through Jesus, when you fall in love with him, you find yourself saying, it's hard, but it's good. You know, it's, it's what I want. I couldn't want anything more. It's worth what I have to pay. So it's not easy, but it's good. Okay? Our time is up, I think. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see if there's one more. I think I, if there's one more here, I'll take one more in the, right in the audience. Is there another in the audience right here? I want to make sure I hadn't forgotten. Missed anybody? Okay. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about Jesus, the only way to God. We're going to look at comparative religions. Try to look and see, I'm going to give you my best shot at how I think the best plan would be to evaluate other religions in light of Christianity. Because either you're going to come to one of several conclusions. Either I don't have any religion and there's no need for religion, though every culture has religion. I'm going to be the exception and I'm going to live without religion. Or you're going to have to say which is the best or the only true religion, right? You've got to make your mind, are they all good and some are better than others? How would you evaluate the difference between, between them? So we'll take a little time looking at comparative religions next week as well. And then we'll come to the last week, and then we will, um, we'll talk about, uh, and of course this will be focused on Jesus is the only way to God. Then the next week, uh, we'll make, it's going to be my job to make it as clear as I possibly can make it. What does Jesus really mean? that you must be born again, or you must be one of his, you have to become a Christian, you've got to be a person of faith, whatever you want to call it, how do you know you really are? How do you do it? How do you know that you've become one? So that's what we'll cover the last week. Okay? If you don't mind, I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll let you be dismissed. All right? Thank you, Father, for a good time here to talk about these things. And again, uh, you're, you being God, would we, would we now hear you Lord, speak to us, and would you uh, kind of rattle our hearts in a way that would, even as hard as it may be, that it would be good, and we might see you as you truly are. Lord, I'm talking to you because I'm convinced you are, but some of us here don't, and so God, for their sake, show yourself if you're real. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.